And so, Father, we do wait upon you. We rely upon your word. Your word is forever settled in heaven. And even as the Psalms tell us, uh, you honor your word above your name. Lord, uh, we do wait on you. We wait on your spirit to minister to us today as we open this word. And Lord, I pray that you would help us to understand it. I pray that you'd help us to apply it. And Father, you also know that we are dust. You remember our frame, Lord. Because of sin that's entered into the world because of our rebellion, Lord, we're all subject now to death and sin and, and sickness and disease. And Lord, you know that Gail has not been in a good way for a long time. We ask God that uh, even now as uh, the fire department and the rescue squad is uh, drove away from her house. Uh, we have no idea what's going on there, but we ask, Lord, that you would intervene. We ask, Lord, that uh, you would lead there, guide there. Uh, whoever is uh, in trouble, I pray for the docs, uh, doctors and medical team, that, Lord, you'd have your will and your way done in their lives. I pray that uh, those involved would look to you, Lord, and uh, they would see that their help comes from you. Uh, draw them close to yourself, we pray in Jesus' name. Let me start off with a question, and some of you younger folks have no clue, all right, I just say this. Where were you 41 years ago? <laughs> not even around at all, not around. Now, some of us were just kind of getting going, but uh, others of us, a little bit more seasoned, uh, we kind of know where we were, you know, and uh, so let me tell you where I was 41 years ago. I had a new life in Christ. I wasn't, hadn't been a Christian for very long. I had a brand new marriage. Me and Kitty were moving from Guam to Fort Worth, Texas on a military assignment. A few months later, I found out that I was going to be a father. And my firstborn son was going to arrive in June 1981, but discovered that he was wooming in until late July. <laughs> I was busy applying to the Mission Aviation Program at Moody Bible Institute and was even accepted there. Now, something about Moody Bible Institute, at least back then, when a student was accepted there, it was tuition-free. So that was a really good deal, all except for the, the aviation stuff. We had to pay for that. Now, I was going to the mission field and taking my family with me. I was so excited. Well, needless to say, things did not work out according to my plan. I ended up not going to Moody Bible Institute, and I was devastated. See, I was going to go and save the world, but I didn't. Notice the emphasis here. I had eye trouble. <laughs> but God had plans for us in spite of my eye trouble, and these plans eventually encompassed the six of us in our family, not just me. And God, the all-knowing, all-powerful Lord of the universe, also had plans for Israel. Right, Greg? Absolutely. In spite of their issues, in spite of their eye trouble. Well, today we're going to jump into the text of Deuteronomy. But if you were a Hebrew scholar, you would know that the name of this book is not Deuteronomy, right? It is what? These are the words, which are the opening words of Moses' fifth book. Now, as we remember, last week we talked about this very thing. This is how the names were attached to the Bible books, especially the first five, uh, the opening words. And so in verse 1, we read that Moses spoke these words to all Israel, a huge crowd numbered in the hundreds of thousands. 
starting from Abraham and Sarah who couldn't have kids, now hundreds of thousands. Now remember when I, at the beginning, I asked you the question, where were you 41 years ago? If we were to ask the people that Moses addressed in Deuteronomy 1.1, that question, the vast minority would say that they were in transition. They were being delivered from bondage. They were witnessing firsthand God bringing His wonders and judgments upon the gods of the Egyptians. But the vast majority of the people Moses spoke to would say, as we heard earlier, I wasn't born yet. Now, there's a reason for that. In a word, the sons and daughters of Israel had eye trouble. Now, after the Lord made a treaty with Israel 40 years before Deuteronomy, they were ready to enter into the land the Lord owned. It was His land. God told Israel to take possession of it. And so to prepare themselves, Moses sent out 12 scouts to find out what was there. And what they found was amazing in so many ways. God often described his, his land as flowing with milk and honey. Total satisfaction. The epitome of attractiveness. Desirable in every way. Now picture yourself, if you will as a citizen of North Korea. Your mother gave you birth in the bowels of one of those re-education camps there. And somehow you got word of a place called America. And you longed to be free of North Korea as soon as you heard about that. And you would do anything to come to the United States. And by the way, if we are really the armpit of the world that so many people in our country describe us as being, why do people still want to come here in droves? Do we have problems? Certainly we do. But are they at the level that the fear mongers and the Marxists tell us that they are, convince us that they are? Well, certainly not. Now, I don't know about you, but actually having lived and visited in many places in the world, I can tell you, that the United States really is the best place in the world to live. And for those who try to tell us that other parts of the world are better than this, whether through economics or government agencies and, and things along those lines, my question is, why aren't you there yet? You know, you can go there anytime you want to and stay. Kind of makes you go, hmm, doesn't it? Let's pray for our country. If the Lord is not finished with us yet, if His total judgment has not fallen on us yet, He can turn us around, but it has to come by way of revival. May the body of Christ return to Him because the Scriptures tell us that judgment begins in the house of the Lord. God's nature has not changed, has it? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He blesses repentance still. And he blesses repentance on the individual and national levels. I'm reminded of what the Lord tells us in Proverbs 14, 34. He says, righteousness exalts a nation, but sin is a reproach to any people. May we pray, Lord, send a revival and may it begin with me. Well, the 12 scouts brought back a report to the people, but it was in two parts. Now, part A was the good news. It was indeed a land flowing with milk and honey. 
And God was correct, as he always is, to describe his land this way. But there was a part B to the report. And part B melted the hearts of the people. The fear factor took over, and that is where Israel developed eye trouble. So let's go to Numbers chapter 13, verses 31 to 33. We'll be in Numbers for a little bit, so open up your Bibles to Numbers, fourth book. And we're going to see what happened. What was going on there? What was the report that melted the hearts of the people? Numbers 13, 31 to 33. Then the men who had gone up with Caleb, they said, We are not able to go up against the people, for they are stronger than we. So they brought to the people of Israel a bad report of the land that they had spied out, saying, The land through which we have gone to spy out is a land that devours its inhabitants, literally eats its people. Now, is that hyperbole? Or maybe not, right? And all the people that we saw in it are of great height. And there we saw the Nephilim. We're going to talk about the Nephilim. The sons of Anak who come from the Nephilim. And we seemed to ourselves like grasshoppers. And so we seemed to them. I don't think that was hyperbole. I think because there were giants in the land there. But how did the people respond to this bad report? Report part B. They wept. They falsely accused the Lord. They as a people made a rash decision to return the very slavery that the Lord had just delivered them from. In other words, fear crippled them to the place where they actually desired their satanically controlled masters rather than their deliverer, the one who truly loves them. Isn't that sad? Isn't that tragic? That's what fear will do, won't it, if we succumb to it? Well, the Lord would have none of that. Yahweh, their deliverer, the one who had just made with them a suzerain vassal treaty at Mount Sinai, declared his vassals to be disloyal to him. And part of the punishment he gave them was to bar them from going into the land that he promised to give them. Let's go to Numbers 14, one chapter over, verses 22 and 23, where we will now read God's indictment and God's punishment on them. None of the men who have seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times and have not obeyed my voice shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. And none of those who despise me shall see it. And then drop down a few more verses to 31 to 35. We read further. But your little ones, who you said will become a prey, I will bring in. And they shall know the land that you have rejected. But as for you, your dead bodies shall fall in this wilderness. And your children shall be shepherds in the wilderness 40 years and shall suffer for your faithlessness until the last of your dead bodies lie in the wilderness. According to the number of the days which you spied out in the land, 40 days, a year for each day, you shall bear your iniquity 40 years, and you shall know my displeasure. I, the Lord, Yahweh, the suzerain, have spoken. Surely this I will do to all this wicked congregation who are gathered together against me. 
in this wilderness, they shall come to a full end, and there they shall die. Imagine being one of the members of that congregation. So what can we make of this? Two things. First, obviously, fear crippled the people of Israel. Just of a bad report. A misunderstanding of what was really going on. Their fear drove them to rebel against the Lord. Now, how would we work? Well, let's just kind of sit down and just see, you know, let's kind of understand, you know. No, no, no. God says, you're done. You have falsely accused me, and you're not going to go into the land. Their fear drove them to rebel against the Lord. Second, the Lord, pretty obvious, severely disciplined them. Wouldn't you think so? Yeah. But there was good news in the discipline. How can that be good news? Well, God did not destroy them. He could have. They were still his people, and he still had plans for them to glorify himself through them. And part of those plans include what we will see throughout the book of Deuteronomy. For the people to whom Moses spoke to in this book, we're the very next generation, the very ones whom the parents said would be killed by the giants in the land of promise. So we can say, if Israel had not had eye trouble and not rebelled against the Lord by exercising faith in Him, we, we would not be studying Deuteronomy because Deuteronomy wouldn't have been written. And the suzerain, Yahweh, would not have had to renew His treaty with His vassals. But as we so often say today, <laughs> it is what it is, right? So with that introduction, we're going to see a couple of things here in Deuteronomy 1, 1 to 8 today, first eight verses. First in Deuteronomy 1, 1 to 3, we're going to see the preamble of the treaty the Lord and Israel were renewing, only now with the next generation. And second, we will begin to move into the next part of the treaty, the history of their relationship and Moses' divinely inspired reflections on their 40 years of the Lord's training and testing them in the wilderness. And we're going to find out in verses 4 to 8. And so Deuteronomy 1, 1 to 3. So if you don't have it there, please go there. Deuteronomy 1, 1 to 3. These are the words that Moses spoke to all Israel beyond the Jordan in the wilderness, in the Arabah opposite Suth, between Paran and Tophel, I practice these, Laban, Hazaroth, and Dizahab. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke to the people of Israel according to all that the Lord had commanded him, given him in commandment to them. First things first, the preamble of the renewed treaty against states who the treaty is made between. In this case, again, the suzerain, who is Yahweh, he is the superior king, and the vassals, the vast inferior people of Israel. Notice in verse 3 that Moses was the spokesman for Yahweh, just as he had been throughout the years Moses led them. Moses spoke all the words that Yahweh had given him 
in commandment to the people of Israel. Uh, in other words, this treaty is between Yahweh and Israel. Yahweh is the suzerain, the supreme king, right? We know this. This means he has the right to call the shots. Now, how often do we think, well, you know, God and me, and I hope I don't sound irreverent, but God and me were just buds. Not here, and it's never been that way. The Yahweh is the suzerain, and he's the supreme king. He is calling the shots here with them. If Israel wants to be Yahweh's vassals, then they have to agree with his terms. This is not a treaty between equals. Now, let me point out something here that without a doubt we take for granted, but it's vital to remember. This treaty is not with any other nation. It's only between Yahweh and Israel. That's it. I can't emphasize how important this is. See, every word that Moses delivered with the authority of the suzerain regarding this treaty was to his vassals alone. It was not to any other country. Now, as we know, the number, there were a number of nations surrounding Israel. They were enemies, basically, some of them. And when we get to the parts in Deuteronomy where God commanded his people to take the land, to cleanse the land of pagan idolatry, and even perform genocide. It's in there, and we're going to talk about it. It was because it was between the suzerain, his vassals, and the suzerain's land. God did not tell Israel to go to, to Egypt, for example, to return there and wipe out their pagan ways. He didn't tell them to do that. It was just in the land, in the suzerain's land, he told them to do this. Now, having seen the who of the treaty, let's look at the where. Where were the sons and daughters of Israel when Deuteronomy was being spoken? And you see a map up here. I hope it's uh, not too washed out. But you see the blue part in the middle. That is the Dead Sea, right? And then up at top, you see the Sea of Galilee. And then you see that little, uh, that little spot in the middle there going down. That's the Jordan River. And it looks like banks right there. That's the Arabah. And then all the way down past the Dead Sea, that's the Arabah as well. That's space on either side of the, of the Jordan River. That's, that's what he was talking about, the Arabah. And there's several place names there, as we just talked about, we just saw. And even scholars today, they don't know all the exact location of these places. But we do know that the Arabah is the patch of ground on either side of the Jordan River beginning from the Sea of Galilee, down past the Dead Sea and out to the Gulf of Aqaba. At the very bottom, you see that blue thing at the bottom? That's the Gulf of Aqaba. Now, in verse 1, we see something significant, though. So back to the text. Moses gathered the people beyond the Jordan River. Now, what does that mean? Beyond the Jordan River. This would be on the east side of the Jordan River in the Arabah. The Jordan is the east boundary of Yahweh's land. In other words, God keeps His promise. He told them they would not enter His land for 40 years, and He kept His word. Now, we don't like to hear that part about God's faithfulness, do we? We don't like to hear that at all. We feel great when we think of God's faithfulness as He blesses us, but when God promises to discipline us, we don't like that. 
pretty distasteful. And we often reject that. How often have we heard, or maybe how often have you said in relation to God's punishment, my God would not do this. My question is, what God are you referring to? See, God is faithful, period. And we need to remember this. And speaking of the Lord's faithfulness, he reminds Israel of the time lag where, quite frankly, they could have been enjoying the treaty, living in the suzerain's land. Again, look at verse 2. The text says the distance between Sinai, where the agreement was made between Yahweh and Israel, and the southernmost part of the promised land in Kadesh Barnea was less than two weeks away, two weeks travel. And so after the Lord directed Israel to leave Mount Sinai and get on with his mission, it should have been less than two weeks before they entered in. Huh. But now fast forward about 40 years, and we still find the people outside the land of promise. They weren't even at square one yet. And we might say that they were not ready for prime time. But even here, even with a 40-year time lag, in God's economy, we can say, in the words of Major Payne, it was a minor setback. Ultimately, in your life, my life, Israel's life, God wastes nothing. Nothing. And when it seems that God has put you on the shelf, Nothing can be further from the truth. He is so patient with us. He's so kind to us. If you think he's done with you, if you think that you're past your prime, if you think you've missed the call, however we define those kinds of things, as many people describe it, think again. It's not happening. Since Israel was not ready for prime time, what did the Lord do? He entered them into his training program that lasted for 40 years. Well, that's about the same amount of time as the length of time the Lord barred them from going into the land. What was he doing? He was training them in order to prepare them to go into the land. Remember the issue for which Deuteronomy was necessary? Fearful in battle. And one would think that the 12 scouts would have remembered all the wonders that the Lord accomplished on their behalf to get them out of Egypt. Crossing the Red Sea as on dry ground, putting the firstborn to death, and on and on. And God's protection of the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night was not a private matter. Who else saw this pillar, these pillar? All the nations around. They saw it. They took it to heart that the God of Israel delivered them, and they were coming. But apparently, at least 10 scouts had amnesia. They saw the giants they were supposed to dispatch, an easy thing for the Lord, but they saw them with their physical eyes only. So what did God do? He trained them to face their fears and to fight the enemy. And verse 4 is a summary statement of this. Look at verse 4. Moses defeated Sion, the king of the Amorites, who lived in Heshbon, and Og, the king of Bashan, who lived in Asheroth and Edri. Look at who those kings were. They were Amorite kings. Amorites. 
Now, as an aside, don't you love the name Og? It'd be great to name your kid Og. That's fantastic. I like that. Of course, I'm not going to do that, but I think it's kind of cool. But let me give you a nutshell version of here as we're going to talk about Og and, and the other guys here. And we'll go into greater detail in a few weeks. But does the name Amorite ring a bell? Remember how Israel and Amorites are, are, you know, the encounters that they were supposed to have? How about if I were to remind us of the covenant that God made with Abram, later to become Abraham? Amorite ring a bell there? Let's take a quick look at Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 to 16. So we need to go there, Genesis 15, verses 13 to 16. It says, Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that's not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation. Why? For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Not only did the Lord declare to Abram to be righteous because he believed God, the Lord also told him the future of his descendants. He told them of their enslavement and of their deliverance and that God would raise up Abram's descendants to be his instrument of judgment on, wait for it, the Amorites. Look again, verse 16, the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. Sion was the first Amorite king they encountered. Beyond the Jordan, by the way, see if it's up there. Yes, you can see that. You can see on the left-hand side, that's the promised land. On the other side of the Jordan is where they fought. The second Amorite king, Og, where did he live? In Bashan, yes northeast side on the outside of Yahweh's land. Does Bashan ring a bell? In Mike Kaiser's words, Bashan was ground zero for evil. Bashan is home to Mount Hermon, the place where the watchers or the sons of God came to earth and had relations with the daughters of men to corrupt the human race. Again, this was the common Jewish understanding of Genesis chapter 6. And guess who Og was? He was a descendant of the Nephilim. Giant. One of the giants he was. And Bashan, by the way, was also outside Suzerain's land. God trained his people to defeat the very ones that gave his people the eye trouble to begin with. They saw the giants. And now what were they doing? They were defeating the giants. Again, we're going to get more into this in a few weeks. But the lesson here for us is that God did not abandon his people. He entered his people into his training program to equip them for the mission he had for them. Now, sometimes we sing the song, Waymaker. That's a very popular song around here. And God is a working God in the lyrics. We remember singing that song. He never stops working. He loves to work a work in his people to get them to be exactly where he wants them to be and to be able to do exactly what he wants them to do to fulfill his mission. 
And now having seen the proposed renewal of the preamble of the treaty, let's get just a little taste now of the renewal of the events leading up to the treaty, technically speaking, the historical prologue. So let's go back to Deuteronomy 1, 5 through 8. Now, it's a sword drill here, so you've got to keep going back and forth. Deuteronomy 1, 5 to 8. He says, Beyond the Jordan, in the land of Moab, Moses undertook th- to explain this law, this Torah, saying, The Lord our God said to us in Horeb, You've stayed long enough at this mountain. Turn and take your journey and go to the hill country of the Amorites and to their neighbors in the Arabah, in the hill country, in the lowland of the Negev by the seacoast the land of the Canaanites and Lebanon, as far as the great river, the river Euphrates. And where is that? That's the very top. So go all the way through. See, I have set this land before you. Go in and take possession of the land that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, to Jacob, to give them and to their offspring after them. And so as I mentioned earlier, these are Moses' reflections on the history of the relationship that they had between Yahweh and them. With treaty established the first time, Yahweh in essence said, Now, vassals, I want you to go on a mission for me. You are to enter my land and take possession of it. This is the land I swore to give to your fathers and to all of his descendants. This was their mission statement. This was what God wanted them to do. Beginning here and then throughout the end of chapter 4, we're going to hear Moses telling the story of their relationship between the Lord and Israel. Moses' reason for doing this was to motivate the people to renew their loyalty as vassals to the suzerain, the deliverer, and the lover of his people. Now, I didn't become a mission aviator. You probably can tell, right? But I did get to the mission field. The Lord placed my family right in the middle of foreign nations, sometimes literally, like in South Korea and Italy, and sometimes figuratively, like our neighbors in Lynchburg who love their drugs. We didn't exactly share their culture. In our family, there are precious souls who need the Lord. And our task is to reach members of our family who are still in the pagan world. Now, I admit due to the fear that I had of losing one of my sons, I think I pushed too hard at trying to get him to come and see the light. And today, we're estranged. You know, pray for Stephen. But you know, I'm learning in relation to the comments made along the way in this message that the Lord wastes nothing. But what he does is equip us for the number one priority that he has for all of us who know Christ. And what is that? As we will see over and over and over again in this book called These Are the Words, otherwise known as Deuteronomy, that the priority of, for the people of God is to love Him first and foremost. Love as He defines love. My love for Him, your love for Him, is to be centered on the reality that He has delivered you and me out of bondage to sin. If I can tell you, by all rights, I should have been divorced a number of times. I should have had several kids out of wedlock. I should have never attended college, let alone seminary. I should have been hooked on drugs because that was my lived experience growing up. But because the Lord Jesus 
has loved me and delivered me. I love him and I want to serve him. And all these great things have happened to me. I have no power in myself to please him. He's given me a spirit. He's gifted me. And he continues to work that work in me and equipping me to love him first. Now, as husband and wife, our growing up years were anything but stable. Now, we all have our own stories. But early on in our marriage, we made it our goal to break the cycle of divorce. Because in Kitty's side, in my side, it was rife with divorce. And by the grace and power of God, I think we will be successful, you know. 41 years, maybe we can go the distance. I pray that God will allow us to do that. And I have every confidence that at least in our branch of the family tree, that our future family members will look back and they will see a marriage that has gone the distance. And our four children will have witnessed their parents who have been faithful to our wedding vows over the years. Now, we have the, free, uh, we have the privilege of, of watching at least three of our kids follow the Lord, and most of them have children of their own as well. And we are watching them to train their children in the Lord's way. You know, and we experience deep joy as they demonstrate to their children what life is like as they loyally follow the Lord. Not perfectly, but loyally. And time will tell whether our grandchildren will go on with the Lord. But the soft hearts and, and the way they're, they're um, responding to their parents' overtures and, and, and things about the Lord, they've got soft hearts and, and hopefully that they will go the distance and they will live for the Lord as they get into their adult years. But the bottom line takeaway for us is simply this. God wastes nothing in the lives of daughters and sons. And though he disciplines us, Sometimes it is in severe discipline, he never lets us go. The Lord told his people, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And our God is faithful. Let's rely on his faithfulness. And in the words of the song, Waymaker, our God never stops working. Even when I don't see it. He's working. Even when I don't feel it, He's working. He never stops. He never stops working. To God be the glory. Great things He has done, and He continues to do. Father, You are so faithful. And why You would be faithful and why You would be loyal to us, we have no idea. It just shows how it just shows your character, Lord. It shows who you are. Lord, you don't um, prove disloyal to us because we're disloyal to you. That's not your way. Lord, we want to be like you. So, Lord, I pray that you would help us to be people of our word when we make promises to people that we would keep them. I pray, Lord, that as we have made promises to you, commitments to you, that we would keep those promises. Lord, that we would not just do just a Sunday morning thing and then go about doing our business for the rest of the week. Lord, we are your servants, even as we heard this morning in, in Bible Fellowship, that we need to scrub our steps regardless of how tedious it gets because this is the job that you've given us to do. And out of love for you, Lord, we want to do what you have called us to do in our families, 
um, even though right now uh, school is not happening, but to prepare um, the, the, uh, the students for school, uh, those in, in retired positions. Lord, uh, everything that we do, everywhere we go, Lord, you had given us jobs to do. And that number one job is to love you and then to show that love to others. And sometimes showing that love means that we, we share the truth with people and people don't like that. But Lord, we want to be faithful to you, even as you are faithful to us. So Lord, I thank you for these things. I thank you for Deuteronomy. I thank you for the way that you are sh- have shown your people that over the years, over the millennia, throughout in eternity, you're going to show yourself faithful and kind and loving to your people. But Lord, you show yourself holy as well. And Lord, uh, it's, it's a scary thing to think of, but you're going to glorify yourself even though people are going to go into a place called hell. Lord, I pray that you would help us put a burden upon our hearts for those who don't know you and help us, Lord, to be eager to share the gospel with them that they might become worshipers of you. So we're going to thank you for this time. Thank you, Lord, for what you have shown us. And I pray now for our time of giving. I pray that you would help us to give because you loved us. And Lord, we can never outgive you. Help us to give as a response of our love to you. And help us, Lord, as to sing as well as an offering of praise to you. And we'll give you thanks for these things in Jesus' name. Amen.